So we are jumping back into the Genesis story. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with the Genesis narrative, who have been tracking with us, or you've been through it on your own previously, you know that the Genesis narrative, it's 50 chapters, that that story has some dark elements in it. Is that fair? There's some, there's some difficult things in the Genesis story, except for Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, in the middle of the book of Genesis, is this really amazingly pure, sweet, simple story that's not interlaced with any other sort of nefarious evil things going on, right? It, it, it is what it is. It's actually a long chapter, but it's a beautiful story. My observation is that in the midst of uh, an environment where it seems like everything's been weird, right? Everything's crazy. Uh, for some of you, stuff that's been going on in the world around you might be anxiety-inducing. But I have found that although we have thoughts about those things, we have opinions about those things, we care about those things, that the place where we are most challenged, most need to encounter God and His presence is in our most intimate relationships, right? That the world may be doing what it's doing, but where I need to know God and His good news is in the context of my own home, my own family, my own marriage, my closest friendships, right? There is the place where my desperation and dependence is, I, I'm most aware of it. So this is a story about intimate relationships. Actually, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you advice on how to find a spouse. That's what I'm doing this morning. So if you're not searching for a spouse, turn to the person next to you who is searching and say, pay attention. <laughs> if you're not currently searching for a spouse, hold on to these truths, because if you're walking in obedience to the disciple-making mission, you're going to be in a relationship of influence with someone who is searching. So here's the story. Genesis chapter 24. Abraham is very old. His wife has died. Isaac is somewhere in the neighborhood of 40. And Abraham calls his servant, his oldest, most trusted servant, and he says to his servant, who's never named in the story, he says, I have an assignment for you. It's a very important assignment, and I need you to make me a promise. This is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to my homeland, my tribe where I'm from, and I want you to find there for my son a wife from my, essentially from my tribal group. This is not, uh, this is not, it seems less a matter, an ethnic matter than it is a faith community matter, right? It says, I don't want you to take a wife from these idol-worshiping groups that live near us, I want you to go home and find someone from our uh, tribal group. And uh, he tells the servant, he says, I want you to put your hand under my thigh and make this oath with me. 
And uh, I don't actually know the history of that or the significance, but I would suggest maybe the next time that you're making an oath, just try that. <laughs> and see, see if that makes you more likely to keep your promise. I don't know. It could work, right? Well, the servant brings up a, an important, uh, basically an important question. He says, so what if I go back there to where you're from and I find a woman, but she's unwilling to come here? Should I then take your son back there? And Abraham says, no, absolutely not. He says, I firmly believe that God is going to bring you uh, the right woman to bring back here, but if it doesn't happen, do not take my son back there. If it doesn't happen, I release you from the oath that you make for me today. So, says the servant took 10 camels, servants, supplies, gifts to give, and headed out. Traveled for a period of time and landed back in uh, what he believed to be Abraham's place of origin, his hometown. So he arrives there in the evening. They, he, he hops off the camel, and there's a well there, but they don't have water or a way to get water or permission to get water. And so while they wait there for a little bit, it would have been customary for the women in the city to come out in the evening to get water. And so he offers this little prayer. He says, God, I really would like your assistance in helping me find a wife for Isaac as per Abraham's request. So how about this? The women that come out to draw water, I'm going to ask them if they'll, if they'll draw water for me to drink. And if, if one of the women that I ask that offers to also draw water for my camels as well, I will take that as an indication from you that this is the woman that you're leading me to. And the story says that before he even finished his prayer, before he was done explaining this arrangement with God, a woman walked up and he noticed something about her. Do you know what he first noticed? She was gorgeous and single. She was not married. And the story actually says, so she approaches, and the servant says, hey, uh, do you think you could get my team some water? And she says, I would love to. In fact, I'll get water for your camels as well. Now, I don't know if you know camels, but they drink a lot of water, like 40 or 50 gallons after a trip, 10 camels. This is, like, this is like water delivery mode, right? Like, bring a truck. And the narrator says that the servant watched her in silence, which is weird because she's doing all the work. But also, it seems to, it seems to convey that he watches her and goes, wait, is, is, it, is this going to be this easy? Like, is that, is she the, did that really just happen? I was like not even done, and then she shows up, she's available, it seems like, she's gorgeous, and man, that girl can draw water, right? <laughs> and so he, she finishes up and he says, um, who are you? 
She says, oh, I'm, uh, I'm the granddaughter of Nahor. Nahor is Abraham's brother, so this would have been uh, Isaac's second cousin, basically. And he said, do you have a place that we could stay? And she said, yeah, I do. You can come and stay with us. And so, of course, the servant is still disbelief. The girl's name, it turns out, is Rebecca. He gives her a ring and some bracelets, some jewelry, and she runs home uh, to, it says, her mother's household. Now, her dad actually isn't in the story. We don't know why. We don't know what happened to him. But she lives with her mother and her brother, Laban. Now, remember Laban, because he's going to become important again later in the story. She runs in and she says, hey, I met this guy. He's apparently come from Abraham, our relatives. And he would like a place to stay. And Laban saw the jewelry and said, let's let this guy stay, right? So they invited him in. It says Laban helped unload the camels. They made them a big dinner. They all sat down to eat. And the servant said, before we eat, let me tell you why I'm here. My master Abraham sent me to find a wife for his son Isaac. God has been very good to that family. He has blessed them. They are wealthy. They've been very successful. And so I came here looking for a wife for Isaac. So if you, if you track, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac in their very old age, right? So Isaac and Nahor's granddaughter would have been similar in age. And I came to the well, and I was saying to God that I would look for a woman who agreed to draw water for the camels. And before I got done, Rebecca showed up, meeting all of the qualifications, including being from my tribe, and she offered to draw the water. And, it, and there's this... What I find to be kind of this like sweet element to this story, he says, God gave me this sign as I was asking for it. Do you think that was from God? There's no coercion, no manipulation. Do you feel that that was the Lord in that? And they looked at the jewelry and said, we kind of feel like God might be in this, Right? Well, they responded. They said, yeah, it seems like God is arranging this. And so the servants began to unpack their bags and bless them with many gifts. Like they had gone and done some shopping, right? And they blessed Rebecca with jewelry and with clothing. And it says, and many other fine gifts. They wake up the next morning and the servant says, okay, let's go. Let's head back home. And the family, Laban and Rebecca's mother, Bethuel, say, Whoa, uh, uh, whoa. Uh, we, we would have to do like a bridal shower and, you know, whatever other customary things would be in order. Um, and the servant says, Hey, if it's at all possible, I would like to go immediately and return home to Abraham. And um, Laban and Bethuel said, Well, we would like at a minimum 10 days of time before Rebecca leaves. And again, it's just another kind of like sweet element of the story. They, they come to this impasse and they say, oh, hey, let's ask Rebecca what she wants to do. So they go and ask Rebecca. Rebecca says, peace out. I'm leaving. 
And uh, she packs up her stuff with her servants, and uh, they head out of town to go and meet Isaac. Three observations from this story. I'm going to actually I'm going to springboard from the story and draw on a couple of things that are not exactly connected. And then at the end, I'll, I'll tie up the story because that's not exactly where it ends. Here's my first observation. Pursuing marriage is a God thing. Marriage is something that is in God's design. It's one of God's good gifts. Abraham recognized this. He says, he says to his servant when he's sending him on the mission, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, he will send his angel ahead of you. What's interesting to me is that, uh, that Abraham seems to be able to effectively hold these two things in tension. Number one, I believe firmly that God is in this. We want God in this. Secondly, it doesn't mean absolutely that you're going to find the woman that we're looking for, right? Um, but he believed that in seeking a wife for his son, that this was something that God would direct, that God would bring together. Pursuing marriage is a God thing. I have seen, maybe you've seen it too, a particular kind of piety among younger Christians that goes something like this. I... I'm not going to worry about who I'm going to marry because I am focused only on God. That's great if you never want to get married. <laughs> Let me say this. I think where that comes, the, the place in our hearts that that comes from is a recognition that there is a stage in life where my desire to be married can become a form of idolatry right? It, it, it becomes too big and consuming and takes over my relationship with God. And to the degree that that's true, there is an appropriate time and place to maybe set that aside. But there's a much more common idol in our lives, money. But we don't say, you know what, I have an idolatrous relationship with money, and to solve that, I refuse to work anymore. I will not work for pay, right? I refuse to give my attention to that. No, we continue to work for money, as God has called us to do, to work, and in the context of that, we deal with our attachments to it, right? Pursuing marriage is a God thing. It's something that He blesses. Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord through that. Proverbs 19.14, house and wealth are an inheritance that fathers can give you, but a prudent wife is something that the Lord gives you. It's his gift. But I want to I mention something here that's an important caveat, not from the story. There is a particular group that should not seek to be married. The ones that are gifted and called by God to live single. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I am called to live single. I think it's fantastic. In fact, he says, I wish everyone would do it. But, you know, apparently some other people need people, so okay, whatever. 
But he actually says people are gifted differently, meaning I have this gift and someone else doesn't. Peter Cesaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Leaders, says it this way. I love this statement. He said, married people show us the depth of God's love while single people show us the breadth of God's love. Meaning, in marriage, I've committed myself uh, wholeheartedly to love this one person in a way that shows the love of God to the world around me. And a single person, having not made that commitment, is able to engage relationships with a much wider circle of friendships, right? Which is exactly what Paul is talking about. Both showing a testimony. But back to our story. Pursuing marriage to the degree that it's not your calling to remain single, to the degree that you can deal with any sort of unhealthy attachment to the idea, pursuing marriage is a God thing. It's something that God ordains and that God should be a part of. Number two, pursue marriage as you pursue God. Bring the two pursuits into alignment. Genesis 24, this is the servant speaking. He says, Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. Essentially what he's saying is, I am walking in obedience to what I'm called to. Now would you bring me success in this other mission to find a wife for Isaac? I would suggest that to find the right kind of person, you're going to increase your chances of bumping into the right kind of person to the degree that you're in the right kind of place. So for example, if you have a tremendous heart for serving others, and you envision God bringing you a mate that has a heart for serving others, my guess is, is that you'll probably be more likely to bump into that person in the context of serving others. None of this is a guarantee or a way to manipulate the hand of God. It's just simply an acknowledgement that when I place myself fully in the will of God, in pursuit of God, that on that track, it seems like it's more likely that I'm going to bump into others who have the same heart and mind, right? Is that fair? Even Abraham knew it wasn't a guarantee. He said, we're going to do everything exactly as God has prescribed. We're going to place ourselves firmly in the center of his will, and if he provides something, which I think he will, fantastic. Also, he might not. Genesis 24, 8. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath that you've made. I just ask that you don't take my son back there. In other words, that you don't, in an effort to, to secure a mate for my son, that you don't violate the will of God and leave the land that he's called us to. Abraham realized that there was an outcome worse than not getting married. You track with me on that? I watched an interview with a famous uh, pro athlete, a female, an outspoken Christian. And she said in this interview, it's a couple years ago, she said, I now regret making public 
my views of the sanctity of the sexual relationship in the context of marriage because it has made it very hard for me to find a date. To which I thought, aren't those the guys that you don't want to date? <laughs> right? Pursue marriage as you pursue God. Bring those two things into alignment. Number three. We have to get to the heart of the story. The heart of the story, actually the meat of the story, the middle of the story, is this man, this servant, asking God for a sign and then processing God providing that sign. So here's the moment of truth. How many of you, at any point in your lives previous to now, have already asked God for any kind of sign related to someone that you were thinking of or who you did marry? Same like last service, a lot of quiet hands. It's almost like a rite of passage, right? Because we want to do this right. What I would suggest, and I think this story bears out, is that when it comes to partnering with God in pursuit of a mate, that we would seek an agreement of many pieces of evidence. Do you notice in the story, the man says, the servant says, so I asked God for this sign, and shockingly, it happened right after I asked for it. And then he says, do you think that was God? Is, are you reading the situation the same way? But that wasn't the only piece of evidence that he was going off of. Proverbs 15.22, without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. This is the agreement of evidence that we see in the story. First of all, it was evidence of God's hand at work. That was there. But secondly, both families are participating in this decision, blessing this relationship. That's not everything, but it's something, right? Number three, she seems to be the kind of girl that we're looking for. Have you seen her draw water? I mean, this girl's going to go places, right? And then lastly, a very important piece after you believe that you've heard from God and everyone else. Rebecca, do you want to go and marry Isaac, this man you haven't met? She says, yeah, I do. On something so significant, something so fundamental that shapes our life for, for a generation, seek an agreement of evidence. I would just say this, that relying on one criteria in denial of all the others is probably unwise. Is that fair? I remember talking with a college student years ago. She had met the guy of her dreams. They were in love, they're ready to get married. Family was on board, everything lined up. And she said, and then I asked God for a sign that he was the one and he didn't give it to me. So I'm calling it off. And I said, I'm not sure that your demand obligated the God of the universe 
to provide for you exactly what you asked for in the form of a particular sign. I don't think we get to control God that way. And I would suggest that you not, to the exclusion of all of the other evidence that God is in this, take that one piece of evidence and make a decision about that relationship, right? After all, if we're being honest, sign-seeking in the scripture is kind of a sketchy track record. Sometimes God gave the sign, other times he ignored it, and other times he said, how dare you ask for a sign? <laughs> so they loaded up in the caravan and they headed back towards Canaan. And they arrived in proximity to the camp of Abraham in the evening and it says that Isaac was out in the field praying, meditating. doesn't say what he was praying, but it was probably something like, God, please let her be amazing. As the caravan approached, Rebecca saw a man out in the field, and she said, who's that guy? And the caravan party said, that's the guy. story ends so simply. Oh, detail. Sorry. One more detail. She gets off. She approaches and she puts the veil over her head. I didn't realize maybe that's where that started, but it says that Rebecca put the veil over her face and she went and met Isaac. And then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he took Rebecca. She became his wife. And he loved her. Because that's God's intention, right? That we would experience his goodness in the love of marriage. God, would you, uh, for those who are on the front side of that decision, for those who are on the, on the other side of that decision, uh, would you give us a grace? Um, Would you give us a confidence and a faith in your good intentions for husbands and wives? Would those who are seeking that relationship, would you, would you meet them there? Would you be present with them, personal to them? And for those who are married now or maybe uh, after marriage, separated, divorced, God, would, would we still, in, in simple, personal private ways would we know your goodness there, your good intentions. We thank you for this good gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand? We're just going to celebrate God's goodness together. We're going to worship together.